I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 274 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is M.E. O'Brien. She's here to talk about her new book, Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the Communizing of Care. Dr. O'Brien received her MSW from Hunter College, CUNY, and completed her PhD in sociology at NYU. After two years in psychoanalytic training at IPTAR, she's now enrolled in psychoanalytic studies at Pulsion. As well as her clinical practice, she spent years coordinating the New York City Trans Oral History Project, which you can hear more about at Rendering Unconscious episode number 73. You can also listen to our previous episode, Rendering Unconscious number 210, where M.E. is joined by Iman Abdelhadi, and they discuss their book, Everything for Everyone, an Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052-2072. You can find a video of our discussion at our YouTube. Just visit Trapar Films' YouTube page. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film. You can find links to everything at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. You can support Rendering Unconscious Podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Huge thanks to everyone at our Patreon community. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hi, Amy. I'm so happy to have you here again to Rendering Unconscious. My pleasure. The third time now. I love it. And the third time, and there's going to be many more with this amazing work that you're doing. Today, we're here to talk about your book, Family Abolition. And this is such an amazing book. And now I get to gush because we're recording. Um, I feel like people hear the term abolition and they hear the term family abolition, but they don't really know exactly what it means. And I was one of those people. (laughs) And so I really needed this book to like really understand. And it's such an amazing, well-researched book. And you really go into like the history of the ideas and the history of politics over centuries and how it's evolved over time and bringing up us to this present moment and you cite such amazing like historical moments along the way and like events that are in recent years like COVID and George Floyd and Trump holding up this baby um and there's just so many and it's really like it really helps to like bring it to life like things that we've been experiencing now and then helps kind of like pave the way for like what how we could look at a different future and how this like capitalist nightmare hellscape that we all live in um, isn't the only way and how there can be different ways to look at care and things like that but of course you're going to talk about all of that and maybe I was thinking maybe we should start with the way you start the book like with with what happened in Mexico sure so a really central part of this book is thinking about how people care for each other in the midst of mass rebellions i call it insurgent social reproduction and that becomes really essential later to how i theorize 
uh, family abolition or the overcoming of the private household. And so I opened the book with a scene of a mass insurrection, a rebellion in 2006 in Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, when the police repressed a teacher's strike. And it ended up leading to eight months of mass occupations and barricades and uh, taking over radio stations and all these things. And um, one of the participants on the radio said, transmitting from the Oaxaca commune. Uh, in reference to the Paris Commune um, of 1871. And uh, what I'm interested in, in the Paris Commune, I mean, in the Oaxaca Commune, I talk about the Paris Commune later, I draw from an article by Baruch Peller, and it emphasizes the role that women play in social reproduction living on the barricades. So they set up barricades because their neighborhoods were being attacked every night by paramilitaries and fascists and uh, sometimes by police and military, the Mexican military. And uh, so they were living on the barricades. And women brought their children with them to the barricades. They did they did educational workshops together. They made coffee. They cooked food. They had radio transmitters at the barricades to communicate with each other. So rather than doing social reproduction within the private household, it became an activity to expand and reproduce. Uh, the revolution, the the rebellion that was happening. And that part of the counter-revolution, as well as intense and brutal state repression, was husbands demanding their wives come back home to cook for them. And this kind of dynamic, this kind of contradiction, really informs the rest of the book. That the private household as a way of living is really quite miserable, doesn't make much sense in a lot of ways. It's on many levels, it's adapted to the nuclear family in particular, is adapted as a survival mechanism in the conditions of capitalism. And that anytime there's mass rebellions, you start seeing large numbers of people taking care of each other beyond the structure of the nuclear household. And that, that in, that's an expansion of care in many ways. And that in those contexts, the reassertion of the family can end up being a counterinsurgent, counterrevolutionary force. Yeah, it's so important because, um, yeah, the family is kind of like the first institution, right, that we're born into. And as you talk about here, like this nuclear family is really new and kind of created by and created with the form of capitalism that we live in. But, you know, obviously it's not like this in all cultures. Obviously, it's not always been like this. It's actually very new, recent kind of invention. And I even remember, like, it's so messed up how things are so pathologized, is even maybe and especially in like our training because I remember even in like becoming a psychologist and getting a PhD, it's like the the idea of like living with an extended family is like pathologized even in school. Like they're like, oh, you know, what's wrong with him or her if they're still living at home or living with grandparents or things like this. Yeah. And it's just wild. They're like, and then we were taught like, well, maybe in certain cultures that's accepted, but like in this culture, it's not. And it's just... Yeah, it's just absolutely wild that it gets integrated into our training like that as as like mental health professionals. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the the. I mean, I as a social worker and a psychoanalyst in formation, like the family is just so central to how uh, the the field understands the human psyche and how what we define as normal. 
Absolutely. Um, and like I said, you 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 talk about such like current events that really help like flesh out your arguments and the perspective. And starting with Corona really showing how like it's impossible for like two people to take care of their children and work and everything from home and when, when all of that was happening and showing like which classes of people ended up really suffering the most. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So I I provide three definitions of family in the first three chapters. And in each case, I have a a sort of recent phenomenon to help illustrate and think about it. And the first chapter is about the family as a private household, as a unit of social reproduction and a unit of property. So it's uh, the family, and this comes out of social reproduction theory, a current Marxist feminism that evolved out of the domestic labor debates of Marxist feminism in the 1970s. And the basic argument of social reproduction theory is that there's a huge amount of labor that needs to happen for workers to be able to show up at their workplace. Everyone needs to be fed and clothed and raised from childhood. And that some of that labor happens in schools or hospitals or laundromats. And some of that labor is unwaged and happens within the home. And so recognizing all the forms of unwaged labor that happen within the home. Um, And my emphasis on this was the kind of impossibility of a household functioning on its own that I looked at the experience of parents during the COVID-19 shutdowns when they happened and during the time that they happened for how extraordinarily difficult it was for people to raise their children. And this really drew attention to the um, vast infrastructure social support that people rely on, that for middle-class people, that's often uh, a whole set of Uh, commodity purchase service activities of buying cooked food, having your clothes cleaned uh, for wealthier families. It's about nannies. And for working class families, it can be a real crisis. It can be very difficult to, to maintain a household, to keep a family going. And people often rely on extended care networks and extended family when they're able to. And the difficulty of the COVID-19 shutdowns really drew attention to how our fantasy of a sort of self-sustaining, independent household that can function on its own is a property form. It's not actually how households can possibly function. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I love how you you point out that Family abolition is about expanding care. It's not mm-hmm. like just like getting rid of the family. It's like expanding the notion of what the family can be so that more and more people can access care. And like you said, too, uh, I think I was mentioned it before we were recording. I'm so glad that we're recording this on a holiday, family holiday weekend. And it's going to come out during this holiday season because being in the mental health field, it's like uh, the season is not the jolly season. This is the season where people get depressed and they have family conflicts and they have to around yeah. people that they don't like or they don't get along with that have abused them. Um, and there's a lot of rise of suicide. So like I like never take off during the holidays, like Christmas and stuff. I'm always like working up until the day and then like right after um, because, yeah, a lot of people really that need someone to talk to during that time because it's such a stressful time. It's not like a joyful time for everyone. For me, it's like most people. I'm like, who are these people with these happy families? <laughs> but I know they exist somewhere, apparently. 
I, that's a matter of debate. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Certainly they do in psychology textbooks. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. in, uh, in advertising. <laughs> You're right, right. In popular culture. Yeah, the ideology of family is something I only uh, touch on. The second chapter engages it a little bit, um, but I mostly maintain a pretty materialist analysis throughout. But the level of indoctrination and propaganda and mass media around the family as our sole space of a decent life, as our only chance to not end up alone. And to some extent, that has a real material truth to it. Like living alone can be very challenging or living without a nuclear family, but trying to find other ways of getting support in the world. And that's a lot of what my book is critiquing, the limitations of uh, the lack of care and support available to people outside of the nuclear family and the need to expand options available to people so that they can more easily leave bad families, that they can form non-traditional families, or they can choose to live without a family. And having, you know, uh, ranging from uh, affordable housing and free health care and education, and um, but also going beyond that to try to think about a restructuring of society that's not organized around the private household and private property. Yeah, exactly. And and it's such an important thing to talk about all the different, you know, things that happen in families. And like you talk about family can be a site of violence. Most people that are sexually yeah. abused is somebody in their family. You know, there's all this like horror of like meeting a stranger in a dark alley, but most people end up being raped by people they know or people in their families, you know, and that needs to be I think talked about a lot more because uh, that's the reality. And I think you said the statistic was like 47,000 women have been murdered worldwide by their uh, partner, intimate partner in 2020. I had a, a friend that was killed by her partner. She, she was in the process of breaking up with so in 2020. Sorry. And it's just like, uh, yeah, she's one of 47,000 that happened to that year, you know, and that, and the repercussions yeah. that has not just on that person, but you know, she had children or their friends or family. It's like uh, yeah. when you think of all of this abuses and all of these kinds of gun violence and things that happen, it's like uh, the statistics that are reported are always astounding when you hear them. But then you think that's just the actual like deaths. What about people who were injured or the people that were affected survived or the people's families yeah. that are missing them? You know, it's like so much more extensive than even the numbers can show. Yeah, the second chapter and several other parts of the book focus on the family as a normative regime of white supremacy and heterosexuality, and um, and particularly looking at two different forms of violence that constitute families. One, a kind of external violence, often of the state, uh, that uh, defining certain families as legitimate and appropriate and excluding other people from family forms altogether and really attacking people's kin relations. Uh, and so that, and then the internal violence that the family form enables, the privacy of the family, the personal domination between people, the intense interpersonal dependency, and uh, how violence is really endemic to families that, uh, you know, whether or not there are better families and worse families, but the family form innate itself enables child abuse and intimate partner violence. 
And I love how you really call out CPS as well. Can we talk about that? <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah. So um, I'm influenced by the work of Dorothy Roberts and the sort of movement to abolish the child policing system. And its relationship to family abolition, I think, is quite complex. And there's been a lot of people thinking uh, these in parallel to each other besides me. And um, But I come out of, uh, I, I've been a social worker for a while and I organized with the radical social work group of formation that used to be in New York City. And one of our organizing projects was around uh, collaborating with um, political groups of women who had been separated from their children in the child policing system or the child welfare system, as it's sometimes called. And um, uh, we were, we advocated for social workers to um, exercise some thoughtfulness about what it can actually mean to call child protective services, how easily it can destroy people's lives, and how often child protective services is called in the context of poverty when actually what somebody, what a family needs is material support. Um, and there are lots of other cases where parents need other kinds of support, but recognizing that the state plays an extremely destructive role in separating people, the huge racial disparities, the intense anti-blackness really built into child protective services, the relative impunity of child abusers who are more privileged, um, uh, wider or wealthier, and recognizing that often child protective services is organized around a model of policing and family separation rather than actually figuring out what kind of support and care people need. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. And it's so like, yeah, when you get child protective services involved, it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, the parents are like on trial. And of course, there's kids that need protection from abusive parents. But like you said, a lot of times, it's people that don't have resources that are low SES, yeah. black families that have been disenfranchised for generations. And yeah, instead of having like actual social supports in place, like give people resources, instead we send these little like task force out to like police them in their homes, you know? Um, yeah. It's really disturbing. Yeah, it's certainly that uh, that movement has been growing. I think a lot more, there's been a lot more attention nationally around child protective services and its harmful role in, uh, in working class communities of color. And there was a lot of attention under tr the Trump administration around child separation from migrant parents. And I... Um, I think that movement is really essential and uh, mental health workers can play an important role. Absolutely. And since you brought up Trump, I love how you talked about <laughs> how Trump was like this perverse notion of like the white nuclear family. And they're like, they really are like, they're like everything that American politics is like, he's really the perfect American president in my opinion, because it's like, people were like so surprised that he happened, but it's like, how could this not have happened? It's like, it's like, he's so like this, this is what we are, whatever. This is what America is. You know, this is what we've done. But he's like, you point out, he's like, he doesn't pretend otherwise. Whereas like the Bidens and all the rest of them pretend like, Oh no, no, we're really good. And we're about freedom and we want democracy and healthcare and whatever for everybody. We want everybody to help, help but he's really just like you know no this is how it is like why like even with his 
quid pro quo thing with uh, Zelensky in Ukraine. He's like, but that's how it works, you know? <laughs> it's like, that is how it works, you know? <laughs> it's like, he's yeah. the only one that's pretending, not pretending otherwise. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I use his family as a sort of embodiment of a kind of the monstrous underside of bourgeois white uh, uh, family politics, right? The, the sexual perversity of it, the nepotism, the cronyism, the brutality that he revels in and that people really identify with him as this, you know, primal, like fantasy primal father in a way. And the image, you referenced it briefly earlier, they, um, Millennia and uh, Donald Trump traveled to El Paso, Texas when uh, they were president and first lady after a white supremacist massacred people. Um, and they went to the hospital where the survivors were and none of the adult survivors would speak to them. But they found a baby, Paul Chando, whose parents had been killed in the massacre and whose surviving relatives were sympathetic to Trump. And so there's this photograph that is reproduced in the book that the White House issued of them holding up the baby and Trump giving a thumbs up. Uh, yeah. And that, for me, sort of embodies something about the, the politics of white supremacy and, and wealth around the family. Absolutely. It's so grotesque. Um, and it, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up as well. Like he's like, yeah, this perfect like primal father who gets all the women, including his daughter, you know, it's like the incest yeah. is there, the nepotism, his son's like, what do they do? Somehow they have all of this money and everything. Um, yeah, they're really just like grotesque and perverse. <laughs> and I hope that they, they're not back in the White House <laughs> at the end yeah. of 2024. So anyway, we'll see. Uh, to be continued. <laughs> um, I also appreciated uh, getting to hear more about George Floyd's background. You talk about George Floyd and his background and like how he grew up a bit more in his family. And that was really nice that you fleshed out this person, you know, instead of just him being this kind of name or figure or symbol. Um, yeah, the third the third definition of family in the third chapter is as a place of care and refuge. And I uh, take the example, the story of George Floyd calling out to his mother as he was being murdered. And his mother, uh, Larcinia Floyd, had passed away. And I trace some of her history and her background. Um, she was quite a remarkable woman and the history of her, their family. And think about the family as where people turn to for care and support if they're lucky enough to have a decent family. And that that, that, that definition of family, so in each case, um, the definition of family calls on a different notion, a different dimension of abolition. So the private household has to be overcome by the expansion of care throughout society, the family as a normative regime of violence has to be destroyed or dismantled, radically transformed. And the family as a source of refuge has to be generalized. It has to be available more widely. And trying to recognize in that example as well, um, the intense affective attachments that many people have to their families and that I'm sympathetic to that. We live in a very, very difficult world uh, a world uh, where surviving under conditions of racial capitalism is enormously challenging, and we all need all the help and support we can get. And if we can find that in our families, that's certainly not something my book is condemning. 
Like what I'm condemning is the its lack of availability everywhere else. Yeah, exactly. You're very clear about that. It's like family abolition doesn't mean abolish all nuclear families but like like if that works for you okay great for you but like the vast majority of people a lot of people it's not working for or they don't have that or they don't have parents or they don't have you know they don't have support um so let's make sure that there's support systems in place for everyone else (laughs) yeah and if people want to form nuclear families that that isn't a property for that doesn't determine your material chances. And that's the much that's a very challenging bit in moving past thinking about the private household. That who you're, you know, and how I envision the overcoming of the family or the overcoming of class society in the latter part of the book, one of the basic premises is that who you happen to be related to and who you happen to love and who you happen to live with should not determine your material well-being. And that really requires a drastic rethinking of how we organize property and life chances. Yeah, that is very, very true. What made you decide to write this book? How did this come about? Um, it evolved slowly out of a, a number of different research tracks. One is I edited a reader called a Revolutionary Feminism, and I looked at 100 years of uh, radicals thinking about gender. So radical feminists, anarchists, communists, others, uh, particularly in the context of broader rebellions that were happening and trying to think about sexual and gender freedom. And I noticed a thread where in each era that I looked at, people talked about the family as something they were trying to overthrow or escape or move past. Uh, not so much in the sort of mid eighties to mid two thousand or into the two thousands. But prior to then family abolition had shown up repeatedly, but I was struck by something that initially I was in was difficult to understand, which was how, what people meant by family kept changing. Mm. And so the first step of this book was an essay in EndNotes that became the core of the historical chapter, which tries to follow the arc of capitalist development, of racial capitalism, and the changing role of the working class family from the mid-19th century to the present in order to understand uh, the changing meaning of family amongst radicals. And so that that became the core, the beginning of the book, you know, the, the historical section. We've spent a lot of this interview talking about the present Right. The the first third of the book that is focused on thinking about the contradictions of the family in the present. Um, and I realized there were a number of things I liked about sort of focusing on family abolition as a place of theorizing. And one of them is I have a longstanding participation and involvement commitment to thinking about queer liberation and trans liberation. And I'm I'm a communist. I'm a Marxist. I care about sort of trying to understand how things fit in a much broader picture of capitalist development and, and human society. And there there's, you know, trans Marxism and queer Marxism are quite vibrant fields these days. And there's a lot of good work happening. But I um, in me trying to theorize the place of trans freedom in the dynamics of capitalism the history of the family became a way of trying to embed thinking about gender and sexuality and materialist dynamics that evolved over time. And through that, 
it helps make sense of the other side of the family, which are those excluded from it, which include many trans and gender nonconforming people historically, not able to form normative families. So the history of the normative family, the sort of rise and fall among other things of, of housewives amongst the strata of the white working class is was very, very helpful in me trying to parse and make sense of the changing place of queer and trans people. And I would add black and indigenous people and colonized people and sex workers and others who've been excluded from the normative family. Uh, they're changing relationship to working class struggle. Yeah, because as you point out in the book, anybody that doesn't fit this normative family dynamic with the gendered roles is then, yeah, automatically pathologized. Um, and you yeah. do talk about sex workers and queer trans youth. And also, I I kind of love how the book is, a, is it just me or are these the uh, trans flag colors? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's somewhere in the orbit of the trans flag colors, possibly the bisexual colors. There's a, there's, yeah. I love it. I noticed yeah. that. <laughs> it's great. Um, so what do you envision? I don't want to talk about everything in the book because they have to buy the book and support Pluto Press because this is an amazing press. I was also telling me that this is like, they've been so great to communicate with and they've sing your praises and um, seem really great as a, as a press as well. So I hope to promote more of their books and their work because it seems like a really good a thing that they're doing. Yeah. So the last third of the book is thinking about the future. I sort of open with talking about potential, what I call progressive anti-family reforms. So it's social democratic measures to expand care outside of the family and the sorts of political coalitions that could enable. I talk about chosen family and their tremendous importance in queer communities, particularly queer communities of color. And I talk about the limits of chosen family and social democratic reforms in our present moment. And then from there, I try to speculatively theorize what the overcoming of the family could look like in a revolutionary process. And that, you know, that's not meant as a blueprint or a plan, but a, a, a means of trying to theorize my, our own desires, what we, what freedom could look like, uh, what a freer society could look like, and use that to try to understand the politics of the present and social movements today. And so I, I focus, I sort of, the kernel of that, is looking at forms of care that happens in mass protest and then using that to try to imagine the formation of uh, communes as a core unit of social reproduction in the course of a protracted overcoming of capitalism in this state. No. Yeah, and then I also have to make sure we plug your fiction book. And I will also encourage everyone to listen to the previous interview that we had and I'll link to it as well but then you have this fiction book that you wrote earlier that kind of imagines you know what the future might look like with this uh, commune yeah they're very much sister books everything for everyone in oral history of the new york commune 2052 to 2072 I co-authored with Aman Abdelhadi um, people are returning to the book right now because uh, in one of Aman's chapters uh, she envisions the liberation of Palestine. And I think it's a chapter that's giving people some solace right now and some hope. 
Um, and they they imagine similar futures, one from a fiction standpoint and one from a nonfiction standpoint. But um, I think for some people, seeing it uh, depicted in fiction uh, can be very much more accessible and resonant. Um, but for others, they waited for the theory book. Um, but I really like to think of them as in close relation to each other. Yeah, they definitely are, because I've also read that book, and they're really great. And like I said, this really is so informative, and I can't imagine that there's, like, a more kind of researched and, like, expansive volume on family abolition that exists. I haven't seen one or heard of one. Um, It seems like an area that, like you said, other people are working on, but I haven't seen some book like this before. Sophie Lewis's book is much shorter, but uh, very good, and I think... uh, it's certainly it, uh, their thinking, Sophie's thinking has been very helpful for me. And I really see the books as complementary with slightly different focuses. Um, but that can be uh, uh, an accessible engagement um, and cover as much of the same history I do, but in, of course, uh, more succinctly. Yeah. But you're also such an amazing writer. Like, even though this is, like, researched and, like, academic, it's, like, so well-written and easy to read. Because sometimes academic tests, sorry, sometimes they can get a little (laughs) cumbersome and tiring. (laughs) But uh, you write, yeah, you write in a way that's really accessible. Um, It's really easy to read. It flows as if you're reading, like, a novel or something. Like, I I think maybe because of all the vignettes you use and everything. I don't know. But the way you tied it all together, I was like, wow, you're an amazing writer thank you notably um if people often assume family abolition is my dissertation i did a phd work in sociology and it's notably uh, largely unrelated to my academic studies uh i i certainly studied some marxism and some social movement history so that gets worked into the book and you know a close reader of family abolition can notice an influence of sociology and uh, uh repeatedly throughout the book But my dissertation research was on how capitalism shaped queer social movements since the 70s in New York City. So really very specific to an urban context, very restricted um, and much more analytically substantiated on some level, right? Primary research instead of secondary research. And but I managed to maintain during my years of my Ph.D. work and the years after uh, a practice of engaging in communist theory and research that was parallel to and partially independent from my academic work and becoming a psychotherapist since completing my Ph.D., has been um, actually really helpful in sustaining my writing practice. If somebody's trying to figure out how to live as a writer, I highly recommend being a being an analytic therapist. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. I love that. It's a good point. Um, tell me a little bit more about your dissertation. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, I, um, New York was was had effectively a citywide social democracy in the post-World War II period, had a much more comprehensive welfare state wow. than any other uh, region in the United States, had um, extremely cheap mass transit, that the fares never went up. It had a free higher education system. It had a free um, public health care system, a public hospital network. It had extremely powerful labor unions and very well-organized socialist movements. It had rent control. Uh, huge public housing infrastructure was built and union-constructed housing. 
And that 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 since the 1970s, a huge a substantial part of that has been dismantled. That New York has really been taken over by financial interests and real estate interests, and that the much of the city's welfare system has been gutted. And so I'm interested in how that that those are the same years that the gay liberation movement rose and fell and became the LGBTQ movement today. And so I was really interested in how that broader class politics of New York City shaped and constrained and enabled forms of LGBTQ organizing. So I interview wealthy donors to the gay marriage movement in New York City who work in the financial sector. I look at poor queers in the shelter system and the difficulty of sustaining that kind of organizing. I look at queer people organizing in the as retail union members, as union workers. Um, and so I look at the sort of different class politics that helps explain why some demands widely shared by many working class queer and trans people really were not able to translate into major successful reforms, but other demands better backed by the the rising lucrative industries of New York City were able to really get an institutional uh, foothold in the city. That's so interesting. I could go like a million directions with that. Um, <laughs> so many interesting things. Um, yeah, the the bringing up like the marriage equality act. I guess you were researching during that kind of period. Um, that's a, another like question and debate of like, of course, everybody should have their rights, but like this this idea of like gay marriage and why it's like so important, and also like why not just like break down this whole idea of marriage, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I was part of a, a network of people that were organizing that marriage should not be a sole focus of the of LGBTQ rights movement. And in the opening section on uh, reforms in family abolition, I closely engaged the beyond marriage movement and some of the statement that queer, Queers for Economic Justice played some role in. And um, particularly this very influential essay by Kathy Cohen, um, uh, uh, linking, recognizing a potential affinity between how the family politics of welfare recipients are pathologized, African-American women, uh, and, and queers, um, and the sort of need to think beyond identity categories to actually recognize that many people are marginalized through uh, the centrality of marriage in, in contemporary law and benefits absolutely and also like with the going to the military it's like let's get rid of the military <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you want to get to the military absolutely you should be able to but i'd rather get rid of it <laughs> it's military and yeah. industrial complex and the fact that all I the mean, prisons are so uh, are like for-profit prisons in the u.s and everything it's all such a mess um, I work with a magazine called Pinko that uh, uh, that is a magazine of gay communism, and we've been active lately in researching and documenting and republishing material uh, on queer Palestinians and thinking about their struggle and against what's called pinkwashing, the sort of enlisting of uh, gay rights in a in I think um, 
in the service of Zionism and imperialism and imperialist violence. And I think we're at a moment where, you know, accusations about uh, Hamas being unusually homophobic um, end up servicing, you know, this brutal genocide that's happening in Gaza. So that 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 that's the really important counterpart to thinking beyond the mainstream gay rights movement is uh, recognizing the enormous horror being inflicted on uh, queer people in Gaza, and that that's as t- deeply tied up with the racism of Zionism and imperialism uh, as it is with homophobia, and really recognizing these connections and trying to think through them and trying to be in solidarity across these intersecting issues. Yeah, it's so important because it's so insidious. Um, it's just like, yeah, like having all of these corporations at Pride and all these corporations like flying the Pride flag, like just for June, you know? It's just like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're using it. They don't really care. They care if you're a consumer and they would love to have your money also. <laughs> I think in the last couple of years with the rise of the kind of anti-queer fascism in the United States, you know, the particularly targeting trans people and trans children, the unreliability of corporate uh, corporate pride is really quite clear. You know, watching Starbucks and Target pull their queerness, queer stuff in order to avoid harassment by fascists and that the corporations um, act as very poor allies, Um well, I also have to say that we're working on this book on queering psychoanalysis, and I can't wait to see yeah. your contribution because you're going to oh, be in God. it. I'm a little anxious about my contribution, uh, uh, but I'm doing my best to pull it together. Uh, I'm writing about, hoping to write, uh, to publish in your collected volume about thinking about the role of the family romance fantasy, the fantasy that you have some other parents or people that you belong with elsewhere in children managing their relationship to lineage and the symbolic and, and the family structure. Um, yeah. Uh, so thinking about the centrality for many, many trans children in a certain kind of family romance. Amazing. And whatever you write is going to be accepted with joy. And also, if you need a little extra time, that's totally fine. Um, because okay. we have time. Well, let's check in soon about it. And one of the most important ethics behind this book is that that the editors and I have agreed on is that we are not censoring anybody's ideas. Because basically everybody contributing to the book is queer and or trans. And so the ideas that we don't want to censor are the ideas of anybody. We want everybody contributing to speak whatever they want to speak. And it will not be changed. I really appreciate your support of my work in particular. And the I think the enormous role you play in psychoanalysis around the world uh, as a as an advocate, as somebody with clear political values, as somebody who spent a lot of time helping to convene um, rich groups, um, and and this podcast, I think rendering unconscious is an enormous contribution to a kind of progressive and critical and open-ended engagement with psychoanalysis and its um, its relationship to human growth and transformation. Well, thank you, and thank you for being here with me on this journey and thank you for um yeah all the work you're doing it's super amazing and i can't wait to have you back um either when the queering psychoanalysis book comes out or before that sounds great 
Okay. Sounds wonderful. Bye. Take care, Vanessa. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. M.E. O'Brien. For more, check out her book, Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the Communizing of Care, from Pluto Press, as well as her previous book, Everything for Everyone, an Oral History of the New York Commune. Be sure to check out previous episodes with Emmy O'Brien, Rendering Unconscious number 73, and 210. And you can also find her work at Parapraxis Magazine, where she is an associate editor. You can follow her on social media at Gender Horizon, on Instagram and Twitter. You can also support her work at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash M-E-O-B-R-I-E-N. That's M-E-O-B-R-I-E-N. Huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. You can check out Carl's website, carlabrahamson.com. You can also follow him on Instagram at carl.abrahamson and Twitter at C-A-Abrahamson, as well as TikTok at Carl Abrahamson. Links to everything can be found in the liner notes accompanying this episode, as well as at renderingunconscious.org. You can also follow me at Instagram at rawsin underscore, as well as at Twitter. At TikTok, you can find me at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23. And now the song, I've Changed My Mind. From the brand new album, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy called Disturbance. You can find the full album at Pete Murphy's Bandcamp page, petemurphy.bandcamp.com. And you can find our other albums streaming at Spotify. Just search for Vanessa Sinclair and Pete Murphy. Enjoy. The who... The why, the how, also I am, myself, themselves, just ready to tell me who, heard, some that, formerly, in him, equally well, line of descent, up from thee, pan, again, make a, simultaneously revealing and confronting the semiotic, Concerned with first things, let it happen. I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind. mind.